FX Medicine Live is proud to be part of the Naturepreneur Experience to be held from the 14th to the 16th of February, 2020. NatX 2020 is the annual business and personal development event by practitioners for practitioners, whether you're a student, startup, or established professional. For more information, click on events under the community tab at fxmedicine.com.au. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Moira Bradfield. Moira has 16 years' experience working as a naturopath, both in Australia and overseas. Graduating with a Bachelor of Naturopathy from Southern Cross University in 2001, Moira has worked as a naturopath in a variety of settings with a wide range of health conditions and disease states. In the pursuit of blending naturopathic medicine with oriental modalities, Moira completed a diploma in traditional Thai massage in 2004 and in 2010 completed a master's degree in acupuncture through Southern Cross University and now incorporates effective oriental protocols into her naturopathic practice. She has travelled to the United Kingdom, Thailand and China as part of her clinical training. She specialises in holistic medical ophthalmology as part of an integrative acupuncture practice on the Gold Coast and maintains a busy private practice in this specialty. She also has a general practice which focuses on complex case presentations and pathologies, including those related to the vaginal microbiome. Moira is about to embark on PhD studies with a focus on women's health and the vaginal microbiome. She continues to add to her clinical expertise through a practical passion for understanding the client-based specifics of clinical presentations. Moira has lectured in naturopathy both overseas and in Australia in nutrition, pharmacology and pathology and is currently a senior lecturer of nutrition at the Endeavour College of Natural Health, Gold Coast. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Moira. How are you going? Very well. Thanks for having me back again. (laughs) In part one of our podcast on vaginal dysbiosis, we went through presentations, screening, modifiable factors, amongst other things, which may impact ladies' health. Today, we'll be delving more into the clinical aspects and treatment of vaginal dysbiosis. So where do we start here? What's the biggest aspect or the biggest issues that we need to be aware of when treating vaginal dysbiosis? Well, to start with, I think we need to remember that we're holistic practitioners and that whilst there's lots of research and there's certainly, um, you know, a tendency to only focus on that one specific area, that really if we're looking for interrupting the reoccurrence that we're seeing in these particular infections, because they are chronic and reoccurrent, that we need to address things more than just what we're looking at in the vagina itself. Um, And that includes everything from past treatment and response to um, looking more systemically, looking at gut dysbiosis, looking at hormonal um, and what's going on in the endocrine system. Is there any issues with blood sugar regulation? And of course, looking at stressors and anything that might be depleting an immune response or even affecting a microbiome in its various surfaces in the body. And of course, there's so many aspects to cover here, but I guess the holistic um, approach to treatment of this might answer 
why there's such a, a vast variability in quote-unquote normal presentations of the woman's vagina. Um, you know, some women normally have leucorrhea. Some women recurrently suffer from candida, whereas others only suffer from it transiently, others only in certain situations, maybe antibiotic use or if they're immune depleted. So how do we assess where we should head back to? For me, that's certainly part of just a general clinical practice. We've talked in our previous podcast about an array of different factors that can influence the microbiome in the vagina. So everything from sexual practices to what they may be using in sanitary and hygiene practices. We also need to assess hormonal imbalance or hormonal balance for a woman because there's certainly an ebb and flow of infection and breakout associated with where estrogen levels are. So we would need to be looking at you know, assessing in a clinical setting like we would at any other time what's going on with the hormones, how are we establishing perhaps something like estrogen dominance um, and assessing along those ways on an endocrine system and also looking for the risk of, you know, high blood sugar levels if we're dealing with a candida presentation. So it's not just about, although it's still important, the specifics of the vagina and the discharge um, and the, um, the amount of discomfort that they may be experiencing and we do need to assess also those things we were talking about previously. So, um, you know, that comes into that presentation on a holistic basis. Just thinking about what you mentioned there regarding oestrogen and also candida, for instance, you know, with, let's say, an overabundance of substrates for growth of candida. The premise is that candida overgrows in the bowel and moves forward because of anatomical closeness of the vagina to the anus. But I, I have heard from practitioners, for instance, a gastroenterologist has said that he never finds candida overgrowing in the bowel, but it does impact on the vagina. Have you ever done testing like CDSA analysis perhaps, which might be identifying that there is candida in a stool sample? And I guess there's still issues on where that, what that stool sample is collecting. Like, is it from higher up or is it from lower down? Um, well, not directly. So, but what you are saying is essentially that we can have a dysbiosis that is vaginal that doesn't necessarily have a reflection on the bowel, um, and vice versa, because we can have certainly bowel-based dysbiosis that doesn't result in recurrent infections yep. for a female. Yeah. And we do know that that migration, the um, anus to vaginal migration of microbes, whether they are mycoses or bacteria is part of how we have this, you know, co-environment occurring. There's also, as we see um, when we're looking at how, you know, just taking something like an oral probiotic affects other sites, like breast milk, for example, mm -hmm. there's certainly in, you know, there's the hypotheses that these things travel to these areas or signalling, you know, population growth in ways other than just direct translocation of microbes. Yes, so there are other ways that we could be looking at that. And certainly, you know, a pre-existing dysbiosis in the vagina and just a normal migration or exposure of a candida species, which would exist there normally. It's just that you don't want the diversity that we see when we have um, those type of infections occurring, that that's just become an opportunistic like it does in other places um, in that circumstance because of a depletion of other microbes surrounding it that aren't keeping it in check, that aren't then, you know, keeping that pH in, in balance where it should be for optimal vaginal health. You mentioned something very interesting there, and that was the microbial signalling. Um, so 
you know, very much like the interleukin signaling that we can talk about reg- uh, with regards to gut-brain function, for instance, a very interesting area of microbial or microbiota, microbiome, whichever one a word you want to use there. Um, the research um, arm that's heading down that path now. Similarly, are you finding that you can influence women's vaginal microbiota by giving oral probiotics? Oh, definitely. And, you know, certainly there is an abundance of research that suggests that's a possibility, looking at everything from just simply, you know, oral probiotics and tracking the appearance of that particular population in the vagina to also using oral treatments in the prevention or cutting the risk of reoccurrence in um, sufferers. So we have that body of evidence there. We also have a body of evidence that is looking at more direct application of probiotics to the vagina where we're using vaginal tablets or um, pessaries. So there is a, you know, there's an array of different ways that we can affect the vaginal microbiome. The, the direction that you take is sometimes dictated by the acuteness of the situation the chronicity of it and also the other circumstances surrounding it because sometimes, you know, you have an acute presentation, that's what you need to treat. The systemic, more chronic stuff comes on in the background and certainly takes a lot more time to shift. So we could use a vaginal pessary to get quite a quick shift in the microbiome, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have an ongoing survival of that population. And in fact, in people who are uh, prone to the reoccurrence of these infections, what they do know is that they're already dominated by a a more diverse microbiome in the vagina um, and of a population group that is more, you know, not just Gardnerella based, but Mabiclinus, which is the one I can't say. (laughs) Mabiclinus, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I love these Um, people that make up these microbial names. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I can read them, but I can't say them. Um, (laughs) You know, that we have that situation. And then we also have host immunity, you know, immune tolerance and what's going on. And, And there's some really interesting stuff that's looking at, you know, that sometimes immune tolerance is an interesting um, factor when we're looking at why aren't we populating long-term when we've put the probiotics in and we've done the hard work, you know, and and it can be down to the fact that that immune system already is in play and and recognising a particular microbe and it works in reverse in that you're actually not, you know, it's doing its job too well and the tolerance isn't there and we're wiping out perhaps beneficial populations and then, of course, we have multiple strains. We have the issue of um, bacteriophages and how they come into play. And certainly, I mean, I was mentioning to you off-air the role of ionas in the vaginal yes. microbiome and, yes. and whether it, that is a fact, you know, a, a friend or a foe. Um, and one of the things they do know about ionas is that it's, you know, got some genes that are quite specific in um, antibacteriophage defense. So when we see a population such as, what we might see in bacterial vaginosis where, you know, bacteriophages may be responsible for that wipeout of lactobacilli. And we also know that that's a really great environment for the, the pathogenic strains to grow. That ionos could possibly be kicking in because it has antibacteriophage capabilities. And in that situation, it becomes the dominant species. It also becomes a dominant species post-pharmaceutical treatment as well. So, you know, whether it is there and it has variants that are pathogenic and it's using that as an opportunistic, whether that is there as part of a trending towards dysbiosis, which is also one of the theories that has been pushed around, it's quite interesting. And what it brings back to us is that we know very little, you know, and, and that we can, the more I go into microbes, I'm like, wow, you have that capability. <laughs> You know, you do that, you can signal that and, you know, you survive in that environment. It's, 
it's interesting that we can then step back and manipulate that and expect to know and control that as well. There's a, a firstly before I move on, I just want to clarify what I asked last time because I, I, I in my last question I don't think I asked it very well. I was thinking more about the microbial signaling. You measure this? You do you actually see the difference in signaling upon giving an oral probiotic or do you measure symptoms? Um, personally in clinic I'm measuring symptom recovery gotcha. research certainly looking at, you know, cytokines of various nature, the presence of T regulatory cells. Um, you know, known uh, expressive in different environments as well. So, I mean, that is there. But again, there's so much interaction going on that it's very hard to pinpoint. And and certainly interaction is the spice of life. You know, it's what keeps us pushing forward and, and creating a homeostasis, which is ultimately where we want to be trending through in this environment. Um, That's another question is what is homeostasis when you've got such a vast variety of normal? It's homeostasis for that woman, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, and then certainly where we're at with the vaginal microbiome is there's an agreement that there's, you know, certainly a lactobacilli dominant vagina is um, the epitome of health. Mm. <laughs> but what that is made up of is quite variable. So there yes. are identified five different, you know, subfamilies that are quite predominant across race and geographic location. Um, but we know that there are some of those that are more um, inclined to be in that vag- you know, the vaginitis type of area, the ones that have the more pathogenic strains. Because when we're looking at the lactobacillus species and their ability to produce lactic acid, that is not just you know, a lactobacillus species trait. And we do have pathogenic strains that can also do that. And therefore, in some circumstances, if we were just going on microbes and, and what that looked like, if, unless we're considering symptomatology, we can't necessarily say whether that is actually, you know, an infection or a pathogenic state at all. It's just that that's a slightly different variant that usually in, in many women is expressed in these type of infections, but in a certain asymptomatic female or a person with a vagina, that might actually be, um, you know, a normal for them. And they may not have symptoms associated with it. And therefore, like when we're looking at other pathogens in other areas, does that require treatment? Lactobacillus enas may or may not be pathogenic, not just a temporal rescuer um, so that it sets up the scaffolding for the next, um, dare I say the word, probiotic organism to come along to then take over the restoration of the normal vaginal microbiota. Is that true? Is that what you're saying, that there may be actually some pathogenic aspects to lactobacillus enas? Possibly. That's, I mean, the jury's still out on it. But when we're looking at this environment... Um, you know, that is a species that has a quite a great resilience. Yeah. It is associated as well with some of these particularly bacterial vaginosis, which is where my head is out a lot of the time these days, um, associated with those type of conditions in health and in disease. Um, one of the factors that when I've been reading around that, I, I do keep coming back to, however, is that we are dealing with people who have used pharmaceuticals. So the introduction of metronidazole, or clindamycin, if we're dealing with resistant species, um, has already happened. So we've already wiped out, possibly, if the you know microbes already weren't there, any base level of the the other types of lactobacilli because they do know about crispatus that um, you know it's possibly um, wiped out by metronidazole. Inas is resistant to metronidazole, so it's also there because 
It can be there. It, it, it likes a, you know, an iron-rich and sulfur-rich environment. So it exists and survives through menstruation, which is wow. also characteristic of Gardnerella. Mm. So, you know, we've got a, a quite a, um, you know, robust <laughs> lactobacilli, but it doesn't necessarily confer some of the other health benefits that the less robust species and the, the diversity or the balance of those in, the, in those families provide. So it, it's quite interesting. Yeah, very much so. I'm, I'm scratching my head here because I thought, yep, got it right. I absolutely got it right. I understand that, you know, Inus crispatus, Gentenii, uh, Gasserai, they're, they're very important good guys. Nah, maybe not. <laughs> so... Well, maybe not, but I mean... With anything, I mean, you look at the, the Helicobacter debate and E. coli yeah, and the yeah. blastocystis, you know, there is conferred um, survival benefit from all of those microorganisms mm. in certain situations. And when you bring it down to homeostasis, that's all our body is trying to do is survive another day. And so, you know, <laughs> how it does that is diverse as well and, and right down to our microbes and, and what they're signaling and the type of environment they're trying to stabilise. So, you know, whilst INAS tends to be that the jury is more on the side that it's actually friendly, there are circumstances where perhaps it's resistant and pathogenic like any of those things, have the ability to be. Can you take us through bacteriophages, please? I can take you through the crash course. Um, <laughs> there's certainly something that when I first encountered bacteriophages, I was like, what? How can that? That's crazy. But it did actually explain a lot of things. So mm. when we're dealing with bacteriophages, we're dealing with um, very small viruses, essentially, that infect bacteria. And uh, if in terms of the microbiome, certainly there are um, bacteriophages, again, that our immune system will learn to have tolerance to and that don't necessarily have catastrophic effects. And where I first came across bacteriophages is when I was looking at, you know, the sexual transmission of factors or, or how does sex affect these microbiomes specifically. And one of the hypotheses that came up in there, and I must state that the work around bacteriophages is still very early, yeah. um, but one of the hypotheses that came up is that we're not actually introducing um, a pathogen. Um, if we're In the case of BV, we're not actually crossing over the Gardnerella. What we're introducing from, say, perhaps male to female is a bacteriophage colony. So we're having a colony of, well, you know, the introduction of something that can come in and pretty much wipe out the lactobacilli colony and therefore create wow. the dysbiosis that allows an opportunistic infection to thrive and survive. Um, and, and, you know, and then I went down into it further and it was, you know, A, quite scary, um, <laughs> and then, but also made sense because when we see, I think we talked in our last podcast about how um, in a relationship that is established between, a, you know, a sexual partnership that um, a male-female particularly partnership, that the longer that that has occurred, the less likely there is to be this risk of recurrency. Um, but certainly when we look at that, if you're constantly being exposed and the immune system does learn tolerance to that and also has, you know, things in play that are protective against it. Whereas if we're going to a new partner um, and then they're introducing a bacteriophage where there's actually no resistance to that or, you know, the immune system isn't primed ready for that, yeah. then that has the capability to come in and actually wipe out that colony. Wow. Does that answer the the old, um, you know, theory, if you like, of ping-pong infections. You know, for instance, you know, uh, the female was treated for thrush and would have sexual intercourse with partner. Partner would then get 
symptoms of thrush and pass it back and forth between each other. And so, you know, there was this time, certainly with bacterial vaginosis, where both partners were treated simultaneously. Is that of relevance? It, it certainly is. It offers insight into that. But we still need to, I mean, being ever holistic, we still need to consider that you would, if you had a really robust colony and, you know, and great mm. pH and good lactic acid production and good hydrogen peroxide production, then perhaps that bacteriophage would never get the chance to do what it does. Yeah. Um, so it comes back to terrain, always comes back to terrain. But it is interesting in the sense, as I mentioned before, because INAS has the genes that they're called CRISPR genes, um, clustered regularly oh. into space short palindromic repeat genes, which are antibacteriophage defense systems, essentially. So a- as a lactobacilli, they have the ability to protect us against that. And that's one of the reasons why we see it in those environments that are already dysbiotic, whether it's representative of a shift to dysbiosis or a response to a shift to dysbiosis because of a a phage, then that's quite possibly, you know, gives us some insight into that as as well. Um, One other point you mentioned earlier, which I'd like to cover before we really move on to the aspects of treatment which are relevant and which work, uh, is oestrogen levels. So... Mm -hmm. When you're looking at treating a woman who has recurrent, let's let's say vaginal candidiasis because it's an easy topic to get our head around, um, the theory is that the estrogens cause an increase in glycogen and that the candida feeds off that. Am I correct in that or is it other factors? That's certainly one of the biggest factors in an estrogen dominant picture. So, you know, that pattern of outbreak is often around that point where estrogen is peaking, you know, so the first part of the cycle into ovulation um, and you know I only had someone remark to me the other day you know that that's oh, they get that regular candida uh, around ovulation which is quite normal and and I, was, I sort of looked and went mm, is it though is that normal or is that actually telling us that there's something going on with those levels at that point in time along with everything else so I mean it is indicative and, and certainly in my experience where especially early on when I first started getting into this area, is that, you know, playing around with the estrogen levels but also the metabolites is sometimes the key to breaking that cycle if you've done everything else to the terrain and looked at all other systemic and risk factors, both, you know, lifestyle, etc. So, you know, shifting and, and stabilising that can have a big impact, particularly in the candida species. So now to move on to treatment, I've got to ask the question here. We, we spoke about terrain and, and it just seems that if the terrain is not set up for healthy homeostatic or homeostasis, then whatever treatment you're going to impart is going to be short-lived and transient. Yeah, definitely. That said, you know, you mentioned that, um, for instance, e- um, certain pathogenic species may produce high amounts of lactic acid. So maybe that isn't the answer to treat with. Um, traditionally, there's been treatments used which encompass things like yogurt, uh, even acetic acid from vinegar or, or dilute vinegar, I should um, also say. Um, where do you find the relevance of these? And indeed, where do you find the relevance of muco or tropho-restorative treatments? to aid in restoring or relieving inflammation of the vagina? I mean, that's a really great question. And certainly those things that are more traditionally used, like that, the vinegar douches or using lactic acid or fermented ways, um, are, are all very useful in an acute symptom flare. 
they're not necessarily, unless you address those underpinning systemic factors, going to result in preventing reoccurrence. And that's certainly, you know, where we're at with these people. Most of the people I see are already in a recurrent state, which is suggestive that those other factors need to be addressed. Um, if it's a once-off, never had ever in my life before this has happened, I had this medication, then sometimes that acute local treatment will get you through and, you know, homeostasis should be restored because the vitality is there in the individual to do that. Gotcha. Um, but in that other stage, you need to certainly give them relief, you know, because depending upon what's going on, it can be very uncomfortable for them. Mm. Um, but then the undercurrent of treatment should go on for much longer. And it is, as I mentioned earlier, it's addressing the why and certainly the cornerstone of that for most practitioners should be looking at dysbiosis in other sites and gut um, because that is our main part of where we're getting that feedback from. But then certainly what is affecting that and, and that's where it becomes systemic, obviously. Is there hormonal aspects associated with that? And certainly even in estrogen dominance, the gut needs to be addressed. Where's the stress and immunity side of it going on? What can we do to correct that? And then we might see that when we introduce the lactobacilli colony that they have a, a much longer longevity. Um, associated with that, the other thing I would want to say, though, is even when we're using local treatments, a lot of the research when we start looking at probiotics intravaginally or even orally is that we're not just doing a short period of time. It's often, you know, post-treatment for a number of months, up to six months mm -hmm. um, before we see an establishment. And I don't think clinically that that's actually going on. There's a tendency to sort of, you know, treat five days, six days. Like a course of oh, antibiotics, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and move away from it. Whereas we are looking at longer term um, and even just a baseline probiotic in at-risk people is, is much more preferred than, um, you know, having to go back to fluconazole, metronidazole, um, you know, those type of treatments so that we don't have to wipe out microflora repetitively. Um, you know, so there's lots of things that are available and there's certainly self-management techniques and controlling for all of those things that are, you know, not necessarily associated, but are the risk factors, which is obviously not just the estrogen, but the sexual habits. And sometimes, you know, it means abstinence around a period of time until we can establish a balance or restoration of a balance in the terrain, um, because otherwise you're just coming in and disturbing a, a microbiome that's already at risk, that's already on the edge of, you know, falling into dysbiosis. So you just mentioning a few of those uh, species and strains, you know, it's, it seems like the list is ever-growing. Um, you know, years ago there was the Lactobacillus rhamnosus GR1 combined with the Lactobacillus reuteri RC14, but then you've got Lactobacillus reuteri CRL1324. Um, that's been used in a mouse model. You've got Fermentum LF10, <laughs> Acidophilus LAO2. You've, there's, the, the list is ever-growing. Do you find practically, clinically, that you must use one of these strains or do you find that that just gives you more confidence to therefore treat? Um, a bit of both. <laughs> so certainly when there are research strains available and readily available, I will go there with them. Um, and I do see really great results with them. And when we're looking at the um, Rhamnosus GR1 and the Lactobacilli rinderi RC14, you know, there is quite a lot of research in candidiasis in vaginal dysbiosis and in bacterial vaginosis where we see benefit from that um, with and without mainstream treatment. 
There is also a lot of research where strain isn't specific and there is benefit associated with just introducing lactobacilli species. So again, it depends on how long has this situation been there, what's been tried in the past, because you will find that most women um, would have self-treated somewhere along the line with a probiotic um, and what is that probiotic. And therefore, you know, going forth along on that track, is, is did that work for you? Did you see benefit? No, maybe let's go with a more specific strain that we know will have an impact because some of those, you know, the research tells us, particularly with BV and reoccurrence, that a probiotic intervention, either post-pharmaceutical treatment but also prophylactically, can, you know, stop reoccurrence by up to 50-60%, which is pretty significant when mm. we're looking at women that are having five to six to more outbreaks, monthly outbreaks, um, you know, reoccurring. And again, if you're having a monthly outbreak, and your treatment of choice is pharmaceutical, then all you're doing is decimating over and over again. Yeah. So if you get something that can hold and prevent that from happening, what you're doing is buying time in terms of, you know, recolonizing and correcting terrain as well. So when we're looking at treatment, you know, I think we've covered in previous podcasts you know, the issue of correcting an iron deficiency and, and indeed when we're talking holistically about uncovering the reasons why they're iron deficient, I guess what I want to ask now is when you're talking about retur- returning the normal terrain, what treatments do you find most useful? Um, it's, it's varied, again, you know, what's going on. So I guess, I mean, you're certainly a good restoration of gut and, and microbe associated with gut is important. Um, down-regulating inflammatory cytokines um, is also very important in a systemic sense and correcting hormones. So, I mean, that, all of that will always go on in the background and, and certainly the treatments for that are so diverse that perhaps, you know, that's a whole other series of podcasts. <laughs> um, so, so those things are imperative and they need to be assessed. The the local stuff, you know, the more specific stuff for the vagina are um, things that, you know, you can use acutely and also long-term depending upon the intervention, but most of the time you can use them um, both, so multi. And, in fact, there are several products out there that lend themselves to using them in a variety of different ways. So, um, you know, things like using capsules um, as pessaries and vice versa, using them oral as a baseline and then using them as pulse treatments intervaginally throughout the month, mm. um, you know, possibly making pessaries that certainly in clinics that have herbal components or that have, um, you know, ferment components associated with them is also very important. And then looking as well, depending upon what type of infection you're actually dealing with, um, at, at what's out there. So it's looking at things like the vitamin C pessaries or the boric acid pessaries when we're talking about things like um, the recurrent candida. What about things like um, creams, for instance, calendula or um, even maybe including something like slippery elm? I haven't used slippery elm. Um, Although I guess one of the things that we need to acknowledge, particularly if you're using any of those other things, that might be a bit acidic. So with any of the, um, you know, boric acid or or vitamin C or even using a probiotic as a pessary, there comes a time, uh, a number of hours after first inserting, where you have a letdown of powdery, gritty stuff. Yes. <laughs> um, and certainly if we've got um, any irritated tissues, whether they're you know on the vulva um, or external, having that leak onto those tissues can be very painful, particularly in the candida situation. So using um, some of those more topical creams, either externally on the vulva or even inserted again into pessaries, 
it's certainly something that I would do. Um, and, you know, over the years of, you know, making pessaries, there's been combinations of calendula in with golden seal, um, you know, and, and using those sort of microbials or using a lovely um, vitamin E-based cream to then use it as a carrier if you're using um, essential oils, you know, to treat various infections. Although over the years I've sort of moved away because um, from herbal interventions, apart from some specific no recurrent things, um, into using sort of more things that are associated with easy access, kitchen cupboard medicine type stuff as well. Yeah. Um, so certainly in acute situations, not just having uh, probiotics on hand, but you know, knowing how to do a 30% apple cider vinegar douche or having fermented whey you know, frozen into little pessaries in the fridge all ready to go. Um, so those sort of things become sort of the mainstay of treatment for me in an acute setting because the baseline's already underpinning it. Yeah, well, one of the, I, I guess the, let's call it a learning curve that I went um, through was with regards to cream bases. Um, do you find the various different cream bases have can have a... Um, either an ill effect or a, or a positive action on the soothing aspect of the irritation that occurs with um, these inf- sort of infections? Most definitely. And it's very hard these days to find a commercial cream that is pure. Um, and so, you know, we do move towards using things now like um, coconut oil mm-hmm. and then you're having to refrigerate and solidify it. Um, but certainly for those reasons we talked about when we were looking at lubricants in the first podcast, you know, osmolarity and, and effect on pH can might mean that it's not necessarily the best thing to be doing in that environment at that point in time. So it is a delivery vehicle, but it's not, not always the best delivery vehicle. And then there also might be certain contraindications surrounding, again, you know, you can tell somebody to not have sex in that situation in the acute phase, but these things happen. Um, and so certainly they may not be, um, you know, suited to mm. certain um, condoms and, and certain types of birth control. There was a practitioner who used to advocate the use with very successful um, outcomes of using a, a weak calendula cream as a lubricant because it was something that was natural, it had tropho-restorative actions as well as antimicrobial actions, and it was something that was quickly um, applied in the heat of the moment, shall we say. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was quite useful in in certain situations, but you find that every now and again it can actually be deleterious? Yeah, definitely, I do. Um, And and then, of course, we were also dealing with not just those sort of considerations, but we're also dealing with the mess. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, I mean, for some interventions, you're adding then, you know, suggesting that they use a panty liner or a pad, which also then creates, a, a you know, a different environment down there where in, breath, in terms of breathability, yeah. which may be counterproductive to what you're actually trying to achieve. Whereas with um, some of the probiotic pessaries, there is a letdown and it's a gritty white powdery letdown, but it doesn't necessarily require, um, you know, the use of a liner. Yeah. So that's a consideration in, in that sense. But there's certain things that we've got to be considerate of, correct, when we're using these pessaries? Definitely. And I think, you know, certainly having a handout that informs them of what to expect mm. um, and when to expect it. So generally with a pessary, we're looking at 24 to 48 hours before we see that powdery letdown. Um, and in certain circumstances, I've learned through trial and error, um, there might be some other things you need to consider. So, for example, in a postmenopausal um, vagina, 
where there may not be the lubrication. I've had a circumstance where the pessary has popped out a couple of days later um, unchanged. <laughs> so still <laughs> Okie dokie. Uh, so um, in those circumstances, certainly wetting it a little bit before insertion is a consideration. Um, the interesting flip side to that is that the lactobacilli has certainly been shown to improve lubrication. So, you know, perhaps doing some more specific oral population work before going in with that if it's not an acute situation. Um, and then another circumstance where um, using probiotic pessaries in a pregnant female um, where obviously, as with all females, the, the position of the cervix changes depending upon where hormones are at. Um, getting a frantic text message asking me, is it possible that I have inserted the capsule right up into my cervix? I can't oh. find it. It's disappeared. Um, so, uh, and, and certainly we worked through that and it, it wasn't an issue in the end and there was a letdown. But because the cervix was so close to the vaginal opening, right. we had been a little bit too enthusiastic right. with pushing it up in there that it had actually, um, you know, gone up more into the Oz and the, and the squishiness of it at that time. Yep. Um, but, you know, she still had a plug in place and it wasn't any other risk of infection. But, you know, those are things, I guess, to be mindful of um, on a clinical setting. Yes, that's a yeah. very relevant <laughs> safety aspect. To, I, can I give you one more? Mm -hmm. um, always be um, very mindful, particularly when using a vaginal uh, microbial pessary, a, a probiotic pessary, to inform your patient to read the instructions that it is not an oral probiotic. Couldn't <laughs> have done any harm. <laughs> with with well, the report was cheap as it tasted powdery. Um, <laughs> that that was it. I think the the lesson is please be specific with your instructions. Take time to inform them, particularly when it looks like it would be given via the usual oral route, but it's not. It's a pessary. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Very um, interesting that you mentioned age there because obviously we do have changes in the... I say we. <laughs> Women do have <laughs> changes in the vaginal mucosal lining um, with age and even after bearing children, things like that. So how do you vary your treatment um, when you're dealing with women recovering from pregnancy, from childbirth, um, and postmenopausal, perimenopausal women? What are their specific sort of um, needs with regards to changes in therapy? Um, I mean, if we, if we start off with the um, postpartum group, I guess, is the considerations there if we're doing any type of oral therapies, obviously, are they breastfeeding? Um, and what impact is that going to have if we're introducing a some sort of therapeutic into place? So we've certainly are a little bit more restricted in terms of antimicrobials if we're using those orally to correct any sort of dysbiosis. Um, the the other aspect of that is if they've had vaginal delivery, there's obviously, and depending upon how soon postpartum it actually is, again, we may have some issues in terms of retaining pessaries if, if that's what we're going to be introducing. Mm. Um, interestingly, in because of what I was um, mentioning earlier about the you know, the iron-rich environment that comes with um, menstruation and also bleeding um, and Gardnerella 
survival is that if we've got somebody that has a history of reoccurrent, I mean, hopefully it's been dealt with during pregnancy to, um, you know, ensure an appropriate microbiome for birth, um, but also in that postpartum period, depending upon the female and the way that they've given birth, the length of time, therefore, that they bleed could also be putting them at risk. So certainly, you know, there's a huge variability in postpartum bleeding from days to um, weeks to months. Um, and you need to be considerate about that would actually be changing that environment as well. You do have a different chemical um, you know, rhythm going on in the background, obviously, and, and the oestrogen aspect of it is slightly different. Um, but certainly that iron-rich environment and the pH of the vagina is very different postpartum um, than it would be in a, a menstruating female as it fluctuates through the month. Okay, so just on a last sort of note, herbs, you know, to me a critical inclusion in prescription um, because you can vary it with each changing visit, changing presentation. But what sort of herbs do you use and what do you find most clinically relevant for treating vaginal dysbiosis and infections? So I mean, we've already mentioned some of the things that we would use more locally if we were using creams or pessaries. Um, to that list, I guess I'd want to mention good old garlic and using whole clove, um, and which is a great kitchen cupboard remedy, you know, at short notice. Yeah. Um, certainly when we're looking at allicinin, you know, the ability of that to affect microbial balance, um, even to looking at biofilms, um, is pretty important. So, you know, inserting it, some people like to, you know, thread a bit of string through it. I don't find that that's really that necessary. It tends to work its way out anyway. Um, and so actually inserting a whole clove of garlic into the vagina um, and and yeah. Um, depending upon the level of inflammation. So if we're doing with a candida where you tend to get that really, you know, raw red mucosa, um, it's a peeled clove but not with any nicks or crushing. Um, if if it's a little bit, you know, less and sort of more chronic and not having that super acute presentation, right. um, you can slightly bruise it. And it does seem to, um, you know, after about six to eight hours, a little bit of downward pressure and it pops itself back out again. Um, and being mindful as well that if there is discomfort associated with it, it's probably not an appropriate. But it has been used for a very long period of time um, as a you know quite traditional remedy in, in that sense. Yep. And we do see research not in true vaginal as such, but certainly we see research looking at garlic tablets, um, you know, and, and decreasing the incidence of BV and and you know quite moderate cure rates, I guess, associated with it. So around about sixty percent um, using garlic tablets but then we do know a lot about it uh, orally yes we do know a lot about it um in terms of just general dysbiosis and how it actually works in um, microbial imbalance and so it's quite cornerstone in that oral um part of my treatment protocol if we're looking to go through and sort of have a bit of a, a clean out so it's a very effective remedy in that sense and um, you know, quite well tolerated, not a huge amount of side effects associated with it. Um, so it's something I quite confidently use in those type of treatment protocols. Um, I know that when we look talking about just general dysbiosis, you know, the, the treatment of that has come quite diverse. And we can choose to, you know, use quite specific herbs and then we have to consider about how how um how specific are they for certain microbial populations? Uh, are we using quite a wide brush to deal with a very yeah. small problem? And, and you know, that's all a consideration as well. We don't want to be wiping out anything that is beneficial. 
um, so again, some of those things would be a little bit more local if we were dealing with a, an acute flare um, and then using appropriate. And for that reason, I mean, a lot of the probiotics that we have have the ability to address biofilm and, um, you know, quite significantly. So there's not always a requirement to go in with a bit of a, you know, <laughs> a wipeout of everything. You can sort of manipulate it quietly and subtly. Um, but certainly if we were to go down that, you know, there's the research there for golden seal um, or any of the berberine-containing herbs, um, interestingly, and also um, things like basil. Um, so we have, you know, the ability to use those and there's certainly products out there that combine things like that that we can use successfully as well. Did you say basil or holy basil? Holy basil. Holy basil, sorry. gotcha. And then, I mean, if we step away for a little bit from things like BV and Candida and look at things like trichomoniasis, which we talked a bit about in our first podcast, um, you know, there is some interesting research surrounding that um, and uh, phytochemicals. So, and, and many of the same things generally that we would use for BV because the two exist coexist quite a lot with trichomoniasis. Um, we see benefit for with trichomoniasis as well herbally. So, you know, there's some in vitro and in vivo research looking at that. And there's some case studies as well with using things like myrrh for trichomoniasis. And interestingly, there's some quite scary statistics of prevalence of trichomoniasis in places like the United States. You know, so certainly in those populations, it's going to be an area where there is, um, they're looking for more and more interventions because metronidazole has many issues. You know, there's some quite severe side effects with that type of intervention. Yeah. Um, and this is a really common reoccurrent issue as well. Why are they finding more of an issue of trichomoniasis in the USA? Are they, is it just because they're looking for it? I mean, Australia has a dearth of um, statistics on this sort of thing. I have no idea. I don't know. It's the population. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and certainly the the you know the risk of unsafe sex, which is you know an increasing issue in our pop- wow. population, surprisingly, um, or whether there are other factors at play. There's certainly when we're looking at socioeconomic factors, you know there are clusters that would be associated with that, and there certainly is in Australia when we're looking at Indigenous communities, unfortunately, and trichomoniasis infection. Um, so that would be a huge part of that, I would imagine. Mm. Um, and then, you know, obviously that everything that goes with that. Moira, I love the way that you always treat the terrain and always ask why something's happening and you always treat the person, not the disease. There's obviously so much to learn here. So we'll be putting up some resources on the FX Medicine website. Um, I guess as a roundup, though, what do you find the relevance or the importance of pre- and post-testing um, to be with regards to your ladies? in determining how they're recovering from these infections? That's a really great question. Um, part of that is dependent upon the underlying factors. So certainly with things like estrogen dominance, um, there would be retesting, even with you know stress and, and the markers of what's going on there, there'd possibly mm. be retesting. Uh, when it comes down to the microbe or what we're dealing with on an infectious level, it's dependent upon what we're dealing with. So certainly um, in situations, and, and not a huge part of my clinical practice, but in situations when there's been trichomoniasis, um, retesting is pretty important. And so that's part of that. Um, certainly with chronic BV and chronic candida, um, symptom pictures alone are able to guide that. So you certainly, you know, what symptoms are available or what symptoms are showing themselves and how often are they reoccurring, if at all, um, should be the marker that you're actually on the right track and that the dysbiosis is being corrected for that individual. 
Um, and so it, it, on that very local vaginal level, that's where I would sit with that. And then the systemically, it's depending upon what specifically I'm actually measuring. So, you know, all of the array of functional and um, mainstream testing is available to us. So thyroid levels, um, you know, blood sugar levels, um, estrogen levels. And if, if I do go down the path of looking at CDSAs and things like that, then we can certainly retest different aspects of that depending upon what showed up initially. Moira Bradfield, I love speaking with you on FX Medicine because you always bring so many aspects of care into the topic that we're, we're talking about and you wake me up to, to make me think about other aspects that I might not have otherwise thought of. So thank you very much for taking us through the health of the vagina and uh, treating vaginal dysbiosis on FX Medicine. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on FX Medicine. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. A lot of what we do here at FX Medicine is made possible by the generous collaboration of our many guests and contributors. We extend our heartfelt thanks as we continue our education of evidence-based complementary medicine.